And the rest of you can get a Bible and open up to the book of 1 Timothy. If you don't have one in the front row here along the edges, we have Bibles underneath your chair, so you can grab one of those and make your way to 1 Timothy. Um, every Sunday, I feel like it's a reminder of how much I love the church. I love the church of Jesus Christ. I love what it stands for. I love what we get to do together. I love what God is doing through the church in the world. Um, the church is amazing. And then, even more specifically, I love this church. And we've been here now only, it's been a few months, not even a full year. In fact, it was just over a year ago um, that I heard that this church even existed. Uh, it was last, is the beginning of last October in 2017. And I'm just thrilled that in the short span of us coming together that um, I'm getting to know a lot of you. I've been in some of your homes. Um, I've been to, to, to sit with you and even start to go through some challenges in life together. Um, I love who God is bringing along to be a part of this church, who God has brought here. I'm looking forward to what he's continuing to do. Um, as he is faithful to his word, um, I'm just thrilled to see the faithfulness of God demonstrated in the last few months, and I'm, I can't wait to see it continue. I think the Lord will continue to be faithful, right? Amen? Uh, so open up your, your, your copy of God's word. Um, I think the Lord will be faithful to his word, and he'll be faithful to build his church through his word, and that's what we're here for. Um, so this morning, we're kind of going to talk about two of those realities, the, the truth of the gospel and the church. And if you're in 1 Timothy, I want you to head over to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, and you can look at verses 14 and 15. We're, we're starting a new series, Life in the Household of God, and we're starting this series going through the book of 1 Timothy. I think you'll see why as we go on. Paul, the apostle, writes this letter, and you kind of don't get to the main point or the big idea of why he wrote until the middle of the book, and we're going to start there, and that will kind of be a door that we walk through that will help us get a background for this awesome epistle. Um, so we start in verse 14 of chapter 3. You're there. Uh, let's read it. I'll read it. It's, he says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church, according to Paul here, is a pillar, buttress, support, foundation for the truth. And even specifically, the truth about who Jesus is, who God is, who we are, what Christ has done for sinners, how to live in light of these realities. This church and all churches are to be preservers, protectors, proclaimers of the truth. Truth is our business. Truth is why we're here. Uh, we're in the business of promoting, protecting, living out, applying truth, embodying truth, making sure that truth is passed on from us to another generation. Truth is so precious. I don't know if you could say, uh, I think you could say, uh, nothing is more valuable than the truth. 
It's more valuable than money to have truth. It's more valuable than your career. It's more valuable than all the possessions you could accumulate. If we lose truth, if truth of who God is and who we are and who Jesus is and how to live in this world, if these things fall to the wayside and we lose truth, we lose everything, right? We, we lose God. We lose salvation. We lose our Savior. We lose truth. We lose our grip on reality. We plummet into the everlasting darkness on a sea of confusion. Our business is truth. I mean, could you imagine being in a world where there was no truth available to you? It's been shown in history that this is actually possible. I know that God will always preserve a remnant of those who believe the truth and are holding on to it. That's why we exist this day is because of the faithful people throughout the ages and the faithful churches down the centuries who have preserved the truth. But it also has proven through history, history has shown that there are times and seasons where churches can drop the baton. And the truth can be lost in a place and for a time. You probably couldn't imagine. I know none of us could imagine the reality that was actually how it was uh, centuries ago in the kind of medieval kind of dark ages where if you wanted to find the truth of Scripture, you would have to go to a church. And if you walked into one of those churches, you would have up in front a priest speaking in a language that had been dead for hundreds of years that no one knew how to understand and that was your access. Uh, there, there used to be times when you would travel far and wide and no one had Bibles. And even the churches that were supposed to be promoting, protecting, preserving the truth had veiled it in layers upon layers of rituals, religiosity of man, so that the truth of the gospel was hidden, obscured. That's the way it was for hundreds of years. Again, like I said, though faithful people rose up, the truth has been preserved. To this day, it is being preserved by faithful churches around the globe. And we stand in line with them as people who are standing on the truth, for the truth, to preserve the truth, and then to pass on the truth for another generation. That's why we're here. So the church in general, and our church in specific, we're like another runner in a race. We've been handed the baton. It is our role and it is our great privilege to bring this precious truth to another generation that will come after us. And you could say that we are in very difficult times when it comes to thinking about all the things we are battling against to fight for the truth. You could say that in the American church there's kind of a theological crisis. As many churches are kind of downplaying the gospel and some of the crucial elements of it for the name of, in the name of what works and what can we do to fill the churches and how can we make sure that everyone feels good once they're inside, the lowest common denominator type of religion. You could say that we're facing a leadership crisis in the church. And you would only have to look around at the person the people who have stood in front and have led hundreds of people in whatever capacity who have fallen. It almost seems like month after month you hear the various stories in government of scandal and even in churches of failure. 
You could say, well, where's the leaders? Where are the people who are going to stand for the truth? Even some who stand for the truth, the cultural winds are blowing. And it's becoming harder and harder to stand firm and to put your stake in the ground to hold to the gospel truth. You could say that we're facing a gender crisis. You'd only need to look at the culture to notice this is going on where men are told that they're not supposed to be in leadership roles or that's not the way it's meant to be and that both men's roles and women's roles are under attack, a constant barrage of criticism. And so even the church is being challenged and pressed to capitulate and to change things. And so I feel that the book that Paul, out of his love for the church, wrote to a young man, Timothy, is so urgent for us today. Because all these issues he deals with, the need for truth and doctrine, the need for leadership in the congregations he serves, the need for understanding roles, all these things Paul will lay down for Timothy if you want the church to be the pillar, the support, to preserve the truth, to, to make sure it continues on to shine for another generation. You're going to have to understand certain things. And I believe for such a time as this, we're here in this city now. Bible's open. The Lord has given us a tremendous opportunity, has he not? To continue in this area for such a time as this, to herald the truth, the truth in love. Because we're always one generation away from losing the truth, right? We may all have it and enjoy it, but if it doesn't get passed on, to our children and to the next generation of people who are coming after us, the truth could be lost. So we're going to look at 1 Timothy because Paul wants the truth to be preserved and protected and I want us to feel collectively as a church that we are here for the glory of God, for the advance of the gospel, And what that means is as a church, we take seriously the call to preserve, to protect, and to proclaim the truth. Because if we've been privileged to have our eyes open to the truth, we're fools to keep it to ourselves. And so we're actually going to start by looking at the guy named Paul, okay? So this whole book starts with the word, the name Paul, because it was written by him, and we're going to see his life in three acts. We're going to first look at his past, then we're going to look at his appointment, and then we're going to look at his passion. And this will all kind of be hovering around, this will kind of be uh, one of those sermons where you jump around to a bunch of different passages, Uh, we're going to look at Acts a little bit, we're going to look at various epistles where he says a little bit about himself, and all of this will be groundwork for understanding the epistle that he wrote to Timothy, because if we can get his pulsating heart, and we can understand what makes him tick, I think it'll be very helpful for us as a church. And so we're here in 1 Timothy, and I want to just start by looking at the first verse where he says, as kind of a normal introduction to a letter, this is normal for him to write this way, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, Paul. To have one of his letters would be a treasure. The man's a giant. He towers above every person in church history who's ever lived. 
He is certainly the most influential man outside of Jesus Christ who's ever lived. Uh, churches that exist today that are founded on the scriptures perhaps owe their existence to this man. He is a giant. His name, interestingly, means small. Maybe he was small in stature, we don't know for sure. Certainly, he's a theological giant. He's a church history giant. His name towers above the rest. He calls himself here, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle simply means someone who is sent. In the secular world, even in Bible times, you would use the word apostle to describe someone who is bringing a message to another person, regardless of the contents of the message. The Bible picks up this word apostle and uses it for Christians having the gospel, bringing it to various places. They're apostles. Thus, Jesus called 12 people to himself. He called them the 12 apostles. These people were uniquely set out by him uh, to plant churches, to preach the gospel, to do his work. There were others, though, that were also called apostles. Barnabas was called an apostle. Epaphroditus in the book of Philippians was called an apostle. Those were not the same as the original 12. They were just people sent to do the work of ministry in the world. Uh, these apostles, some of them, Barnabas and Epaphroditus, for example, were called apostles from the churches, of the churches. In other words, there were churches that had been established, and these churches sent out men to do ministry and even missions around their surrounding regions. Paul, however, does not call himself an apostle of the church. What does he call himself? He calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. Which is to say that Paul sees himself as someone who is personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That he had an encounter with the risen Lord, and we're going to see this. And he was commissioned by the risen Lord. Now this man, we have to look at his past. It's an amazing story, and it again gives us a foundation for understanding why he would say to Timothy the things that he did. You can turn over to the book of Philippians to see a little bit of his autobiography as he writes uh, in chapter 3. Paul, we'll see here, starting in verse 4, you could say, had a former life where he had confidence in himself before God. He says in verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul grew up, and we're about to see this, he had extreme confidence in himself, in the flesh he says, because of the background that he grew up in, because of the way he was raised, because of even his pedigree, his family. Look at what he says, verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. It's exactly what you were supposed to do as a Jewish boy. On the, of the people of Israel, part of the people of God, chosen people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. Let's pause there for a second. Paul was raised in the chosen people, a Hebrew of Hebrews, best of the best, you might say. He was born and raised in a family that would have taught him the law, but not only was he taught the law, he studied it fastidiously to know it for himself. This is what would have happened if he, were, if he was a Pharisee. 
He was a student of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, The ancient historian Josephus says that the Pharisees were called and understood to be the most accurate interpreters of the law. He calls himself a Pharisee. In other words, he studied the Old Testament scriptures. He knew them inside and out. He was raised in such a way that even from a young age, he was trying to understand it. Uh, One man wrote a biography of Paul in his attempt to try to understand it and tried to write the biography like you would write a biography of any other man using scriptural sources and others to try to put a full picture. And he said that Paul uh, would have, if if, if it's true what we're reading here in scripture, and it is, uh, what would have happened is by the age of 13, this young man would have been mastering uh, a whole bunch of different subjects in the Old Testament. He would have been an absolute master of Jewish history, He would have had a mastery of the poetry of the Psalms. He would have had a mastery of the literature of the prophets. You look at other portions of scripture, we see that he studied under a most respected man, a rabbi named Gamaliel. He had the most uh, fortunate education. He was brought up to be trained by the best of teachers. Obviously, his family trained him. He was taught well so that by the young age, as a young man, this man was neck deep in theology, in scripture, probably memorizing, probably learning the entirety of the themes of the passages in the Old Testament. This man had it down. In Galatians, as he's recounting his story, he says this, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. So he looked back at the traditions of his fathers, the people who had gone before him. There's probably a a long line of Pharisee-type people who loved the law, loved the Old Testament scriptures, and he looked fondly back at the past of the people who had come before him. And he was, even as a young man, devoting himself, giving himself to study And it says that he was so devoted that he was advancing faster than everyone else his own age. He was respected. He was becoming an expert. And so for him, this zeal, this burning passion to know the law and protect it, led him to a place where he was going to devote himself to anything that he saw as an imminent threat. Which we know, reading through the book of Acts, was this newfangled idea about a dying Messiah who came back from the dead. And so we meet Paul. You can turn to Acts chapter 7 if you want to see it yourself. The first time we meet him, he's not called Paul, he's called Saul, his Jewish name. And in Acts chapter 7, we come to the end of a man named Stephen preaching the gospel. He he finalizes his sermon by a nice heartwarming invitation to know the Lord. (laughs) Actually, look at verse 51. Listen to what he says. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. He preaches the gospel. He calls them to account. He calls them to repent of their sin. 
And you know, of course, what happened. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. Uh, the, the raging mob wants to put this man to death because of the message that is being proclaimed about this Jesus who has died and rose again and is now Lord of all. And the fact that this man had the audacity to call these chosen people to repent, this caused them to fly into a rage. And so they get ready to pick up stones to kill this man, Stephen. Verse 58, look at where it says here, they cast him out of the city. And they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments. Here it is, guys. Here's how we meet our, our hero, who's not yet a hero. They lay down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Even there, you might say that he's showing some leadership. He's not going to be the one to do this dirty work himself, but he's got a whole bunch of people who are going to do it for him. He's collecting their garments, probably for no other reason that it's easier to throw a big rock if you don't have your big garments on. So they, these guys shed their cloaks, they throw them at Saul's feet, and they go over, they kick this guy out of the city, they take their rocks, and they kill him. And look at chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. There's no due process, there's no system that this man has brought through Stephen to see if he's guilty or not. They hear his message, they're offended by it, and they want him eliminated, and so they pick up stones, they kill him, and Saul stands there approving of this, this killing. He turns into a man who is completely enraged against the church. Look at chapter 8, verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He hates the church. He's almost like a terrorist for the church. You find later in Acts that people actually remember his name because of how violent he was against the church. He's looking for ways to drag off men and women and bring them to silence. He hates the gospel. He hates the message of the dying and rising Messiah. He wants what he believes is true. The law, the Pharisee belief that you could be saved by strict keeping of the law. He wants that. He's a murderous, self-righteous, Christ-hater. He's violent and he has an intensity that's almost irresistible. Now let's pause for a second. As we sit here and reflect on the badness of this man, let's just remember this for a second, that we all have a past and that our rebellion maybe didn't express itself like it did with this man Saul turned Paul. Maybe we weren't a Christ-hating, stone-throwing, violent, murderous, Man or woman, if you're an unbeliever and you walked into this room and you thought that every Christian here had it together and our lives are all nice and tidy and that we were, were here because, you know, our parents taught us to be good kids and so we're being good and showing up to church, I want to say publicly on behalf of everyone here that we all have passed just like Paul. What we're about to see is Saul 
completely transformed, not by his own willpower, but by the sovereign grace of God. And in a sense, we can all say this, no matter what our rebellion looked like, whether it was hatred toward Christians and hatred toward the truth, or whether it was self-righteous, uppity, nice, clean-cut, religious-type rebellion, it was rebellion. And it deserved the wrath of God. And what the Scriptures teach is that God doesn't save by merit. If He did, there's no way Paul would be anything except this murderous man that we've just read about. But God saves by grace. So this is really good news. As we reflect on our own past, we all have different ways that we have rebelled against God. And we are here this morning, not because we figured it out, but for some way along, uh, some reason, for some reason that's only found in the infinite mind of God, God saw fit to save us by His grace. And what we're going to see here in a moment is that Paul's past and the sins that he so violently committed against Christ became a launching pad for his ministry because he often, through his letters, reflects on his past. If you have your finger back in 1 Timothy, in fact, I'd just say, just keep a finger in 1 Timothy throughout this whole sermon because it'll, we're going to keep going back there. In verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, he often does this. He often thinks about his past and he often refers to his own wretchedness. This is not abnormal for Paul to speak in this way. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Don't you love that phrase? The grace, the grace of our Lord overflowed. You can almost think of it as a cup. That's just the water's coming in. The waters of God's grace is flowing in. And that cup, it's not filled this much. It's not filled halfway. It's not even all the way to the top. The grace of God is just pouring, pouring, pouring until this cup is just overflowing. And this is how God treats His people. He has an ocean of grace. We are all like little cups. And the amount of grace we enjoy is, is small compared to what he's able to give. He has plenty grace for every sinner, every one of us. And so Paul's past becomes something of a catapult for his future. He, he thinks about who he was and often reminds himself of the grace. And so what about you? When you think about your past, I know if you're like me, there are times where you cringe a little bit. <laughs> Maybe there's even things that you are ashamed of. Uh, there are things that you don't like to talk about. But Paul 
was so convinced of the grace of God that he didn't mind talking about his past. He didn't mind bringing it up because it proved the goodness of God. I think one of the ways we will know and even a tangible way we'll be able to tell that we are really going deep with the gospel here, one of the tangible ways is that we will be fearless when it comes to talking about our past and our struggles, even our present sins. Because we will understand that those sins don't define us anymore, that those sins are not our identity anymore. And so by the grace of God, we can say, yes, this is who I was. I was a blasphemer. I was an insolent opponent. I acted ignorantly. But the grace of God. And so our pasts launch us into praise, don't they? And so we see this man was transformed by grace. And it is this gospel, the gospel of grace, that becomes his life. And it is for this reason that he wants the church to be pure and to protect the gospel because he's so enamored by the grace of God. He knows that the church's mission is to protect and preserve this truth. Let's look on this next part. We looked at his past for a moment. Now let's look at his appointment. And go to Acts chapter 9. Remember, keep that finger in 1 Timothy, but look back at Acts chapter 9 because now we're going to see how this man is appointed to service of King Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 1. We meet him again. It's before his conversion. The conversion of Saul. Verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here's this man. He's trying to get a hold of letters that have been sent. Uh, he wants to see what's going on at this synagogue in Damascus. He wants to find out if there are any who are belonging to the way is what it's being called here, the way of Christ. This new message of the dying and rising Messiah, Jesus Christ, he wants to find out are there any believers in that in Damascus. And so I'm going to look through the letters. I mean, this is how intense this man is. He wants to find him. He wants to bring him back to Jerusalem. Now look at what happens on the way. You know the story, right? Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, who was he persecuting? In Saul's mind, he hated the church. He was persecuting this church. He, he wanted to go destroy and eliminate and stamp out the church. And Jesus confronts him and says, hey, you attacking the church, this is actually you attacking me. Jesus is so identifying with the church, he sees it as his bride to attack the church, is to attack him. He confronts him. And you don't argue with the resurrected Christ. That would be foolish to argue with the resurrected Jesus Christ. Which is why, back in 1 Timothy, when Paul introduces himself, he says, I'm Paul, an apostle, by command of Christ Jesus. I mean, you don't argue with it. He, he confronts him. And right there, right then, he goes blind, but his eyes are opened. If you know what I mean. 
He's physically blind. His spiritual eyes are opened. He sees who Jesus truly is. Reflecting on this moment, in the book of Galatians, he says, but when he, Jesus, who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, listen, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. To Paul, this was the most amazing reality. Not only that he had been saved, confronted by the risen Savior, it wasn't only that. that. That was enough to thrill him and make him sing the praises of Jesus forever. Trust me. But also, what thrilled him was this reality that not only was he called to salvation, but he was appointed to service. You see that? You see in Galatians 1, he's saying, God not only was pleased to reveal his son to me, but he did so in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles or to say that in today's language, among the nations. Paul's heart now, now being changed by Jesus Christ, was to be the apostle to the nations, to bring this gospel to the nations. This is his appointment. He took no credit for this. He didn't think that it was because of some qualities that Paul had uh, and that God said, oh yeah, this guy is better than some of the rest. I'm going to save him because he's earned it. It was grace that he was saved. And Paul says, it is grace that I've been appointed to ministry. I get to be God's messenger. I get to speak on behalf of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And certainly Paul had a unique role to play in redemptive history that's unrepeatable. There will never be another Paul. Uh, His unique role was that of establishing the church and being the first to bring the gospel beyond Jewish lines and to preach it among Gentiles and to expand the gospel's reach to new nations. He took no credit for any of this. And though his role was unique, there's something that's true for all of us. Is that you too, in the moment that you were saved by Jesus Christ, not only appointed to be an heir of salvation, but appointed to be a servant of the King of glory. All of you. Every one of us. Not just people who happen to be up front. Not just people who happen to have titles that are designated leader. From the most obscure person here at the church to the most prominent person in the church, everyone is equally called to serve King Jesus. And for Paul, this reality that he was appointed was one of the most thrilling things he could fathom. He, he always comes back to it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, For this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. It was almost unbelievable that he could be used by God for his service. I mean, he thought about his past, and he goes, who am I to be useful for God? But then the grace of God and the appointment of God to call this man to service. And so let me ask you, 
Why were you saved? It might be an easy question. You could say, well, I'm saved for the glory of God, and that's true. But there's also a sense in which that you are here and that you have been saved because God wants to use you to continue the work of the gospel here in the places that he's put you and so that our church would be a beacon of light to the nations, just as Paul was. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul makes this very clear as he writes to the churches in Ephesus. He says in chapter 4, verse 11, that God gives leaders in the church, pastors, teachers, uh, not just so that they can do the work of ministry, but what it says is so that everybody in that church, all the saints, would be trained, equipped to do the work of ministry. This is an amazing reality, that every Christian has been called to the work of ministry and it is the role of leaders to equip the saints to do that work of ministry. And so here's some amazing things, is that the guy up front preaching has one part to play, but so does everyone else. And the parts all look different, but they're, listen, all equally valuable. We need all the body of Christ working together. Paul was appointed to service and this amazing reality is true for all of us. We are appointed to serve King Jesus. Uh, author um, Sinclair Ferguson has written on this subject and he, he calls it, it might sound a little odd at first, it did to me, but he calls this idea uh, having a sense of destiny. Uh, having a sense of destiny. He, he writes this, in every age... Those who have been of service to God's kingdom, whether publicly or privately, known or unknown, have been conscious of this sense of destiny. They have devoted their lives to it. And what he means by this is this idea that you have a profound sense that God wants to use you for his good purposes in the world. I think it's true if you just look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that God has not only saved you for his glory, but he has prepared you for good works. He's prepared good works beforehand that you would walk in them. There's a reality in which you're here for such a time as this to serve Jesus in the ways that he's called you to serve, every one of us. And I think there's this idea that we all have to have this sense of calling, of destiny, that God wants to use us for his glory in the church and in the community. We all have a role. I'm reading a book, actually just finished it last night, talking about the culture of a church and, and how to promote a culture of evangelism where people just naturally share the gospel and people just naturally help one another follow Jesus. It's just part of a culture type thing. And he's describing what happens in the, in the life of a, of a Christian. And often there's this uh, time where you come to the Lord and usually there's an excitement. And often what happens is that excitement kind of fades over the years and sometimes you forget the greatness of the gospel and you kind of just kind of settle into a routine. But he describes uh, what he calls, uh, the Australians wrote the book. So pardon the... Uh, it's not a bad word. I'm not about to say a bad word, but it's kind of an Australian saying. Maybe it's not. He calls it when the penny drops. Maybe Americans do say that. I just don't say it. So he says, when the penny drops, he's referring to this moment in a disciple's life, a follower of Jesus' life, when all of a sudden light goes on and they realize, I have a role to play here. 
I have a big role to play in the lives of these people, in my small group, with my neighbors, in my church family. God wants to use me. So I'll ask you, has the penny dropped? Have you come to this realization to have this deep sense that for this time in this season, for such a time as this, God has a role for you here, now, with neighbors and friends. Paul believed that he was called, and of course he had the privilege of hearing it from the words of the risen Christ, hey, you're going to be an apostle to the nations. But through Scripture, we see that we all have been called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us from the darkness into the light. All of us have a role to play. All of us have a ministry that we are called to live out. So Paul was appointed I hope you see his appointment. But I also want to reflect on this reality that there's a sense in which every one of us has been appointed to service. From the moment we begin to follow King Jesus, we begin to follow him into a life of love toward neighbor, toward friend, toward the lost, and toward the people sitting in this room with you. He's called you to this. Now I want to look at the third act of Paul's life, I want to look at his passion. Looked at his past and we saw where he came from. We looked at his appointment, how Jesus confronted him. He called him out from his sin, appointed him to service, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now I want to see how that all played itself out in his actual life. What was his passion? And you could turn to Acts chapter 13 where we see the first missionary journey. Paul went on various missionary journeys. There's three recorded in the book of Acts. And I want to show you the first one. This is the one that comes uh, after he's converted, of course. And he's with a church in Antioch with a man you know uh, by the name of Barnabas. And we first meet this church in Antioch. And it's blessed with all kinds of good teachers. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. We're going to do kind of a quick overview of this missionary journey because it gives us the passion and insight into the heart of Paul. Verse 1 of chapter 13, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So there are all these people that are qualified and able to teach. God had gifted this church in amazing ways. Verse 2, and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So here's this church. They have all kinds of teachers. The word of God in this church is being taught. They're worshiping the Lord. And here the Holy Spirit sets apart Barnabas and Saul for the first missionary journey. They pray for them. They send them out. And what's their strategy? How are they going to do this? We're going to have to kind of cherry pick what we're looking at here. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis... They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. This is kind of their routine. You're going to see this again and again. Is This is their in to the people. They want to be able to share the gospel. And the synagogues are a great way in. And so they come in they proclaim this good news of the gospel in the synagogues of the Jews. 
You go down a little bit farther into verse 14. They move on to a new area. Verse 13 says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. They came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went from Perga and came into Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, here they go again, they went to the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the ruler in the synagogue sent a message to them and ends up being that Paul is able to stand up and preach the gospel to all these people in the synagogue. You say, well, what are we pointing out here? Here's, here's, here's the point. Paul is interested in evangelism. He's very interested in helping people come to know who Jesus is, who God is, what he calls all people to do in repentance and faith. You go a bit further at the end of his sermon, you come to the end, verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So what's happening here is very clear. Paul is preaching the gospel. Barnabas is preaching the gospel. People are hearing the word of the Lord. Some people are getting saved. If you read more closely, we're not able to do that right now, but we'll see that people are coming and opposing this at every turn. But the word of the Lord is going and going. Look at verse 49. Listen to this. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. It was just taking on a life of its own. This isn't just referring to what Paul and Timothy did, or sorry, what Paul and Barnabas did. This is referring to the people who embraced this, took it as their own, and began talking to others about it. The word almost becomes like this organism where the people who are embracing the gospel continue to tell others about it. It just is moving. Go up to chapter 14. Now at Iconium, they entered another synagogue. They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. We're going to find out next week that that's where Timothy probably got saved, right there. You go to chapter 14, verse 19. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, persuading the crowds. Listen to how awesome Paul is right here. They stoned him. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. I mean, this is a brutal beating that he takes. He gets stoned. They think he's dead, verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. (laughs) There's no stopping this man. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby, And here it is again, listen. And when they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Listen to this. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, which is amazing because when they set out, there weren't any churches. Now there's churches that need elders. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I want to mark three parts of Paul's heart here. And I think this is helpful to just note because this is going to be the heartbeat of our church. By the grace of God, as we keep looking at the scriptures, this is how God will change us and this is how God will shape us. Paul's heart, Paul's passion was evangelism. It wasn't necessarily, there was no program of evangelism. There was no uh, formal event that they did. There was no outreach event that they planned. This was just the heart of these people. 
And the word spread because the people who he taught embraced this and they also went and evangelized. The word just spread. So his heart was evangelism, but it wasn't just evangelism, it was discipleship. We saw in the end of chapter 14 that he went to these churches, strengthening them, encouraging them, building them up, making disciples. The churches were not interested only in just getting lost people into the building. That was crucially important. But the people who had been brought to salvation were trained and equipped and established and strengthened and encouraged. And what did this result in? Healthy churches. And so he went through and he gave them all elders. He appointed elders to these churches. Now sometimes we can over-complexify church ministry. But here, just reading through Acts, here's some of the main things. Evangelism, talking with your neighbor about Jesus, taking opportunity with friends and family to bring it up into conversation when appropriate and with wisdom. Discipleship, in other words, talking to people in the church, walking with them side by side to help them love Jesus better, understand him more. Reproducing and multiplying healthy churches, that's what they did here strengthening them, giving them leaders so they could grow and be healthy. By the grace of God, as we seek to obey the Great Commission, my hope is that these things become part of our DNA. It's just regular to talk about the people we're evangelizing. It's just regular to talk about the people we're helping follow Jesus in discipleship. And that our prayers are bigger and beyond these church, this church walls, that we're looking to help churches outside of us Uh, If the Lord allows us to plant a church, or if the Lord allows us to strengthen another church, or if the Lord allows us to revitalize another church. This is what was happening in the first century with Paul and Barnabas. And I hope that we pray toward these ends. I think sometimes we can convince ourselves, I don't have the gifts to do these kinds of things. Well, we all are gifted in different ways. This is very true. And some of us will excel at different things, and, and that's okay, and that's good. It's part of what the beauty of the church is. But all of us, in the ways that God has allowed us, because we love God and because we love people, are called to work in the lives of other people to help them know and follow Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. You have access, complete and total access to God the Father who loves to give good gifts to his children. You have the penetrating word of God. Paul's passion was to take those things, the the power of the spirit, the, the word of God, coming to God in prayer to advance the church through the simple ways of evangelism, discipleship, praying for healthy churches. Lord willing, we'll cultivate this more and more in our own church as we grow deeper in love for one another. It would be normal as we move forward together to see these types of relationships spotting, uh, growing more and more where the older in our church pursue the younger, older men going after the younger men and helping them walk in the Lord and older women going after younger women and helping them walk in the Lord just in normal everyday life. That the, the way that we talk to each other is, is colored by the truths of Scripture even put, uh, you could look at it in your bulletin, there's a little box at the bottom on, the, on this note. Uh, we put in there something that says, hey, what I learned from the sermon. 
And the point of something like that is just, a, again, another way that we can facilitate good discussion. Maybe use that in a spiritual conversation with a friend or with your spouse or with your kids around the table. But all of us, in the ways that God has given, are called to be those who help one another follow Jesus. We see Paul's passion was to preach the gospel, to establish and encourage those who received it, and then to work for the promotion of healthy churches wherever God allowed him to. Paul did these things. This is why he wrote this letter to Timothy. Because he cared about the church. He cared about the truth being preserved for another generation. So our services, as best we can, want to preserve and proclaim the gospel. Every Sunday, Lord willing. The good news, guys. God is holy. God created us and owns us. God will hold us all to account for his word and that all of us have fallen short. But that God, overflowing in love, sent his son Jesus Christ to live and die for sinners, to rise again from the dead, paying fully the penalty for the sins of anyone who would ever believe. And by faith, not by earning it, but by faith and trusting in Christ, we can be completely and totally forgiven, totally redeemed, adopted into the family of God, given the Holy Spirit to empower us for life and ministry. This truth we proclaim. This is the DNA, the heartbeat of our church. We will fight as best we can, like Paul like Barnabas and like many who have come before us to support, to preserve, to protect, to proclaim this truth so that it's handed down to another generation. Paul couldn't do any of this stuff by himself. And as you read through the New Testament, you see just this growing number of people who are gathered around him for the work of ministry. And one of those men is named Timothy. Paul calls him my true child in the faith. Friends, we need each other. We need relationships that are deep and strong, that are committed to the church family and committed to the gospel message. The gospel that saved us and the gospel that we love, we must preserve. We must proclaim. And the way that God allows us to do that is by planting it deeply into lives of people who will outlast us. And so we are here for the preservation and protection of the gospel. It's an amazing calling. We all share in it together in our hope and prayer that as we go from here and as we understand our calling, reflecting back like Paul on our previous life, but looking at the grace of God and looking at how God has called us now as a church to fight for these great realities, that the Lord would bring much blessing as we seek to glorify his name and reach this community with the gospel. Now we look around the room and we say, we're in this together. And may we do this in such a way where his glory is on display and our love toward another is, is felt deeply as we move forward as a church family. Amen? All right, let's finish in a word of prayer.